welcome. Uh, we are continuing on with our series on the story of Jesus, and we're up to chapters uh, 8 and 9 today. So if you open up to Matthew chapter 8 and 9, we're going to be um, kicking along there. Um, for the kids who are, are watching today, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for um, listening to our, our service. Now, in Matthew 8 and 9, there are a lot of stories of people being healed. There are lots of crowds and uh, lots of people who maybe couldn't walk or couldn't see, um, and they're finding healing. So if you want to draw a picture today, maybe one of those things might be a good thing to, to draw a picture of. Let's go through the, um, the story that we have so far. So if you've missed the last lessons or if you've forgotten where we're up to in Matthew, this is uh, what we've been looking at. So we've looked at, uh, we've started with the birth of Jesus, and um, then after that, the wise men visit. Thirdly, the, um, the story of Jesus going to Egypt and then to Nazareth. Finally, um, sorry, number four is John the baptizer prepares the way, and then Jesus is baptized by John the baptizer. Then we have the temptations of Jesus, and we have Jesus beginning with his preaching. So this is what we've kind of looked at. This is uh, Matthew introducing, this is how Jesus comes into the world. This is where Jesus comes from. And now we have gotten into his main core teaching last week with the Sermon on the Mount. And then this week, we're going to go a transition from his teaching to what he did. So Matthew's telling you not just the, the teachings of Jesus, but he's telling you the actions of Jesus. So on our next slide... We have um, in chapters 1 and 2, this was our first lesson, we looked at the childhood of Jesus. In chapters 3 and 4, we looked at the ministry of Jesus beginning. In chapters 5 through 7 last week, we looked at the Sermon on the Mount. And I hope you're able to, to read along in our devotional books as we've been going through these lessons. And you would have read through the Sermon on the Mount in the past week. And so this week, your readings will come from chapters 8 and 9, uh, which we have titled The Healing Begins. So, today's lesson, I'm going to look at three points, and they're going to um, hopefully introduce you to the concepts that come out in Matthew chapter 8 and 9. The first point is, we're going to look at the reaction that most people have to miracles. Then we're going to look at the, the types of miracles that Jesus performed. And then finally, we're going to, in our final slide, um, the reason that Jesus came to heal. So let's look at this one by one and, and tackle each of these points individually and uh, hopefully get an understanding and a bit of an introduction to why we are looking at these things and the kinds of things that Matthew is going to be saying in chapters 8 and 9. So point number one, the reaction that most people have to miracles. Let's just tackle the elephant in the room here. If you're a Christian and you're reading Matthew 8 and 9, then these chapters are a fairly easy reading. You don't really bat an eyelid when the Bible starts saying that Jesus did some miracles here and some signs and wonders there. If you're not a Christian, you probably read these and you have a bit of scepticism and you have a pinch of incredulity when you look at these stories because, of course, whenever you read a story about something miraculous that happened, your natural reaction is to um, at least guess or... or have a bit of a, a wonder about why they're making up these stories like this. It's the same response that Christians have when, when we're reading through the Greek myths or the Babylonian myths and we read about supernatural events. We, we look at this and we 
kind of write it off as just being these made-up stories that people have similar to fairy tales. So when you come to Matthew 8 and 9, there are miracles in these chapters. And, and when you come to these chapters, it's all going to be about your preconceived ideas. It's going to be the ideas that you bring to the story that will determine how you're going to read these um, events in Jesus' life. See, if you believe that God exists, if you believe that he created the world, then of course it makes sense to say that he is able to you know, cure a disease or to heal someone who's been sick. If, if, if you believe in your heart that God truly exists, that he created this whole universe with all of its um, planetary bodies and with all the stars and with all the intergalactic space and you know, having a diameter of 93 billion light years and you believe that God can create that out of nothing, then of course you can believe that he can restore someone's sight when they're blind. So of course Christians believe that Jesus could do miracles. That's precisely what you'd expect from someone who claimed to be divine. You'd be far more surprised if he claimed to be divine and had the exact same abilities that we do. He had no control over nature. He had no control over the physical laws and constraints that this universe has. So notice what Matthew is not saying here. Matthew is not saying that we live in a world where miracles happen all the time and Jesus did some too. Matthew doesn't live in a world where miracles are the norm. He's saying miracles don't normally happen. That's what makes the miracles of Jesus so special is because we live in a world that is quite normal, but there was a person who was exceptional who could actually have control over nature itself. And that's why when you read the Gospels, you come across people like Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a leader of the Jews, and he came to Jesus in John chapter 3 and verse 2, and he said, we know that you're a teacher that's come from God, because no one can do miracles unless they come from God. And that should be our reaction too. Well, of course it makes sense that Jesus could do some miracles if he was indeed divine. So it's not a dichotomy. You, you don't have to choose between, am I going to believe that, that science tells us how the universe works, or do I have to believe that Jesus can do miracles? You can believe that Jesus healed people and still understand gravitational theory. You can still... It hold in your mind those two concepts that Jesus had miraculous powers. He could have control over miraculous events. But I still recognise the laws of motion. I still recognise special relativity. I still recognise that gravity exists and that people can't just break it willy-nilly. The silliest thing to do is when people try to combine a materialistic worldview, one that says that there is no God, there is no supernatural, there is no divine, they try and combine that worldview with then taking on the teachings of Jesus. And you can't do that. There's no way that Jesus' teachings and his life make sense without the miraculous part. If he was just a, a teacher of things and there was no miraculous component, then almost all of his teaching doesn't make sense and all of the life that's recorded by the Gospel writers doesn't make sense either. But people have tried to do this. People have tried to separate Jesus, the great moral teacher, from Jesus who did miracles. One of the famous examples that we have of this is Thomas Jefferson, the third president of the United States, uh, one of the founding fathers in the US. And he was a deist. Now, a deist is someone who believes that God created the world, but essentially he went away and had a picnic and 
doesn't look on this world, he doesn't interact with this world, he has nothing to do with this world. So you believe that there's a creator, but you don't believe that there's anything um, supernatural that could ever happen. There could never be any miracles, there could never be anything supernatural. So he was a deist, and when he read the Bible, because of his preconceived idea, he ruled out the possibility that miracles could exist. He ruled out the idea that anything spectacular could have happened. But when he read the Gospels, he loved them. He loved the teachings of Jesus. He just hated the miracle part to it. He said about the teachings of Jesus, they are the most sublime and benevolent code of morals which has ever been offered to man. So he was in a bit of a conundrum because he loved the teaching, hated the miracles, but of course the miracles and the supernatural part saturate the whole story of Jesus. So he came up with this idea. He sat down at his desk one day and he opened up his King James Bible and he opened up a blank book and he got a knife and he got some glue and he went through the Gospels bit by bit and he literally cut out the words that he liked and pasted them in his new book, which he called The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth, which is extracted textually from the gospel accounts. So he he literally went through bit by bit, word by word, phrase by phrase, cut out everything that he liked, left behind all the bits that didn't really suit him. And if you're watching on our live stream, um, we've got some photos there to show you. You can actually see the bits where he cut them out, where he's gone with his knife and cut out this particular bit here. Even um, zoomed in there, you can see where he didn't even like the grammar of the King James, so he even changed some of the wording himself. He cut out particular words that he didn't think was necessary. He must have been quite a fussy man. And you can see there the the cuts in the paper and the the, um, lines in between the words there, and that's because he's cutting out and taking the bits that he likes and he's leaving behind the bits that he thinks um, doesn't suit. So you can go to the Smithsonian Museum and you can look at that Bible or you can check it out on, online and you can see the, the Bible that you get when you try to remove all of the uh, supernatural elements to the story of Jesus. So out of Matthew 8 and 9, guess how many verses um, he Thomas Jefferson left in? He left a measly two verses in. Uh, Matthew chapter 8 and verse 1, it says, When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And then he skips all of the stories in chapter 8 and all of the stories in chapter 9. That He throws them all out and he puts in Matthew 9 and verse 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So that's what you have to do. If you want to take away the miracles from the story of Jesus, you have to take away 99% of what was written about him. <clears throat> so the choice is yours. You can either read the account of Jesus written by one of his followers, someone who spent time with him, someone who listened to him, saw him interact with people, spent years observing his life, spoke the same language, was in the same culture, lived at the same time. Or you can choose to read the account written by Thomas Jefferson, written 1,800 years later, who was living on the other side of the world in a completely different culture, who spoke a different language, who had no experience in the study of history or in understanding first century Jewish literature, and he decided arbitrarily that he could reinterpret Jesus' whole life 
based on something that would fit into his modernist, enlightenment, philosophical worldview. Now, I know which story I'm going to be reading, and so we're going to keep on studying Matthew's Gospel, because it's far better than Thomas Jefferson's Gospel. And I think, really, we should have very little time for people like Thomas Jefferson, who try to cut up and change the Bible story and pretend like they can understand it better. Um, Oftentimes, it's purely because they don't understand and haven't studied these areas that they can't understand the things that, are, that Matthew is writing. And so they think that the fault is on Matthew's end and not on their end. Um, they blame the text rather than blaming their own ignorance. And that's why I don't think it's very profitable to spend your time studying Thomas Jefferson's account of Jesus' life. It's much more profitable to study the account of someone who was there and saw it. Okay, so the fact is, part of the story of Jesus is that he does miracles. And you have to try really, really hard to get around that. But he doesn't just do any miracles. And this leads us to our second point. The types of miracles that Jesus performed. Some people get the impression that Jesus just went around doing magic tricks to prove that he was divine. Some people get this idea that it's like he went around to big crowds and just kept saying, is this your card? Is this your card? And everyone was impressed and everyone followed him and and loved him for it. But many of the miracles that Jesus did were were not like that at all. In fact, he doesn't do any card tricks in any of the Gospels. But most of the miracles that he does are are not in public settings. They're in private settings. Um, They certainly weren't done just to prove that he was divine. In fact, often when people asked him to do a miracle to prove his divinity, he refused and said that he wouldn't do it. Many times... He did miracles but didn't want the public recognition for it. In uh, Matthew chapter 8, let's just, uh, Matthew chapter yeah, 8 and verses 1 through 4, uh, it's talking about the cleansing of a leper here. It says, When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will. Be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed, and Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. Jesus wasn't doing this miracle to draw great crowds to himself. He wasn't doing this miracle to impress um, huge numbers of people. Oftentimes he, he does it in really insignificant settings. You look further on down the chapter in Matthew 8, verses 14 and 15, it says, And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. The point is, Jesus isn't doing these party tricks to impress people. He's not doing this just to get attention to himself. The miracles that Jesus did are not an arbitrary fun fact about his life. It's not, well, we, we should focus on his teaching, but it's interesting that he did some miracles as well. That's not the point. The miraculous activities that are attributed to him are deliberate and they're purposeful and they're profound. Let's go through an overview of chapter 8 and 9 to show you the types of miracles that Jesus did. Not random party tricks, but deliberate, uh, miraculous events that he did. In chapters 8 and 9. Here's a a bit of a list of what we come across. Number one, a leper is healed. Number two, a centurion servant is healed. Three, Peter's mother-in-law is healed. 
Four, he talks about the cost of following Jesus. Five, Jesus calms a storm. Six, Jesus heals two men oppressed by demons. Seven, Jesus heals a paralytic. Eight, a woman is healed. Nine, a girl is raised from the dead. Ten, he heals two men who are blind. Eleven, he heals a man who is mute. Twelve, he goes from town to town preaching and healing. You get the key word there. You understand the nature of Jesus' signs and wonders. The key theme is, of course, healing. These aren't arbitrary stories about this crazy magician that roams the land pulling rabbits out of the hat. The key reason why Jesus exercised his divine abilities was to bring healing. So the question is, and this brings us to point number three, what is the reason why Jesus came to heal? Why did he spend so much of his time healing? After all, wasn't the purpose of Jesus to save us from our sins? Doesn't Matthew chapter 1 and verse 21 say, You shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins? Not their diseases, not their illnesses, not their blindness, surely. So why is it so important that Matthew tells us all of these people that Jesus healed? Why doesn't he spend these chapters instead telling us more about what Jesus taught? I mean, what relevance does it have for us today whether or not Jesus healed a blind man or whether he healed Peter's mother-in-law? I mean, how does that change your life or mine? What's the point of Matthew telling us all of these stories? Well, healing is a really important metaphor. Sin, all throughout the Bible, is described as a sickness. If you um, were listening to our Isaiah class a few months ago, um, we looked at sin as a sickness, as, a, as an illness that gets inside you, um, as an illness that the Israelites were unaware of, and they didn't even realise the, the sickness that they had in their lives. Finding healing and finding salvation carry a lot of the same um, similarities. They're both about having a broken life that gets mended again. In fact, the, the Greek word for save and the Greek word for heal are the same word. It's the Greek word sozo. So when it says that Jesus saved someone, it's Jesus sozoed someone. When it says Jesus healed someone, it says Jesus sozoed someone. So oftentimes, these two things go together. They are intrinsically related. This concept of what it means to be healed and what it means to be saved, they share so much in common. And so Jesus actually links the two of these together. In Matthew chapter 9 and verses 1 through 6, we see a story where Jesus actually puts the two together and he doesn't separate physical healing from spiritual healing. He actually links them in one passage. So Matthew 9 verses 1 to 6 says, Getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. You know, I wonder, sometimes wonder what the paralytic was thinking at this point. Um, you know, he must have been thinking, well, thanks for the forgiveness, but I was really here about my legs. I was really here about, you know, getting to walk again. 
And behold, in verse 3, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. You know, this is such a ludicrous statement. Have you ever said to someone else, um, my son, your sins are forgiven? This is clearly claiming to have some authority behind it. And so verse 4, but Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. So in this passage, we have a healing that goes, uh, that, that's physical in nature, and we have a healing, a, a saving, that's spiritual in nature. And of course, in, in both of those cases, it's about someone finding wholeness again when things were broken in their life. And your salvation and my salvation are about us receiving healing. It's about Jesus, the great physician, coming into our life and healing our sin-sick souls. And all of these events that we have remind us that Jesus has come to this earth to heal broken people. And you and I are part of that, that broken demographic. Those people who have their souls weighed down with iniquity, who are enslaved and in bondage to sin. And Jesus, the great doctor, comes to heal us. Look what happens immediately after Jesus heals the paralytic. This is another healing that Jesus does and it's not an external healing but it's coming to someone whose life was broken and bringing them wholeness once more in chapter 9 we'll read verses 9 through 13 as Jesus passed on from there he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth and he said to him follow me and he rose and followed him that's the person who we believe authored this book verse 10 and as Jesus reclined at the table in the house Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners." Jesus came as a doctor and for people who thought that their lives were perfectly whole and healthy, they didn't want a doctor. And for you and I, the, the warning is still there. If, if we truly believe that our lives are perfectly fine and healthy on their own, then we will have no need for a doctor in our lives. And Jesus, who wants to come and heal us, wants to come and save us from our brokenness, he will not have an open door into our lives if we do not first recognise the sickness that we have. I want to just uh, bring one more passage to your attention. This is Matthew chapter 8 and verse 17. Matthew chapter 8 and verse 17. Remember, in Matthew, we're looking out for phrases this took place to fulfil. And uh, in, in Matthew 8 and verse 17, we have one of these passages. It says, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and he bore our diseases. And the funny thing about this reference is if you have a footnote in your Bible, it tells you where this reference comes from. And it comes from Isaiah chapter 53. 
It comes from the chapter about Jesus dying for our sins and bringing us salvation. And Matthew takes a quote from that chapter and he applies it to the physical healing that Jesus was bringing to people's lives. The point is this, that in that healing that Jesus was doing, every time you read a story about someone's life um, being healed, someone's physical body being healed, Matthew wants you to understand that this is a metaphor. This is showing you the compassion and the mission that Jesus had to come and to heal broken people. And you can substitute yourself into that story and say, yes, I too am sick. I too am broken. I too am unwell and need the healing that Jesus gives. And that's why we sing songs like Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound. It saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. I am the people in this chapter. I am the sick people who are calling out to Jesus and saying, Son of David, have mercy on me. If you are willing, make me whole. Cleanse me from my sin. Heal me. Save me. Here's our main point. Jesus came to heal broken people. And his healings weren't party tricks. They are an expression of his mission and his compassion. So, yes, Jesus did do miracles, and that shouldn't be hard to believe if you do believe in God. And if you don't believe in God, I don't expect you to believe that a man could do miracles. That's a nonsense thing. It it couldn't happen. But yes, if God is real, and if Jesus really is his son, then it's not hard to believe at all that he had the power over nature to heal those who were sick. But Jesus performed these miracles mainly to heal people, to look out on a broken world and to mend it. And you and I have that same mission. You and I need to look out on the world that we see and bring healing and life into people's lives. No, we don't have the miraculous ability. We can't zap people's eyesight back. We can't miraculously pop their hearing back. But we do have his words. We do have his life. And we do have his atoning sacrifice. So let's not be afraid to reach out to people who are broken and rejected. Let's not be afraid to find people in our lives who are hurting and who are lost and show them that same genuine compassion that Jesus showed.